sometimes people will say, well, you know, Whitney, can you have my boss read this book? And I'm like, well, yeah, I can, but really this starts with you. And, and what I would say is if you are having trouble letting people on your team jump to new learning curves, then that requires your own personal work because sometimes when we don't want people to jump, it's because we're worried that if we lose our high performers, then our team is going to underperform and they might in the short term. But it's also not understanding that if you can um, allow high performers to continue to be high performers, either by doing something new on your team or going somewhere else, then you start to become a talent magnet and you start to attract the best talent because people know that if they're working for you, they're going to get a lot more opportunities. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky, and it's my great pleasure to have as our guest today for the second time, Whitney Johnson. Hi, Whitney. Hi, Agnes. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you back. And the occasion for the recording of this new episode of the podcast is the publication of your new book, Build an A-Team, Play to Their Strengths and Lead Them Up the Learning Curve, which was just published recently by Harvard Business Press. So before we go and unpack a little bit this idea of teams and disruptive innovation and learning curves in teams, I would like to maybe just introduce you very quickly, Whitney. So you have been last year uh, indicted as one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world, in the Thinkers 50. Whitney Johnson is an expert on disruptive innovation and personal disruption. And this she has uh, written in her previous book in a framework which she codifies um, in the Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work book. And she's also the author of a previous book, um, Dare, Dream, Do. Remarkable things happen when you dare to dream. So Whitney Johnson is an author. She, after a long career in Wall Street, co-founded the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Harvard Business School's Clayton Christensen. So she had a life in investment, investment banking. And nowadays she's working as a speaker, as a thought leader, as an advisor. And Whitney is also one of Marshall Goldsmith's original cohort of 25 for the 100, number 101 Coaches Project. So she's a project for Harvard Business School Executive Education Program. And I really encourage all of you to go and follow uh, Whitney on Twitter and LinkedIn because she's a very prolific um, uh, author and, pub and publishing lots of fantastic content, among others, also her own podcast. So... I could go on, <laughs> but uh, instead of listeners listening to me, I would like to hand over to you, Whitney. Can you maybe tell listeners what is it that gets you out of bed? What are you passionate about? What are the issues that you think now is the time to solve in the world? Yeah, so what gets me out of bed every day is the idea that I can make it 
not maybe safe for people to change, but guide people through the process of change. Um, and in the process of doing that, help you become a great boss, a boss that people want to work for, a, a person that people want to work around and with. And um, and in the process, build a great team and uh, be a place where people can bring their dreams to work. That's what gets me excited. Now, uh I very much appreciate that you mentioned already, you know, bosses and teams, because this latest book of yours is focusing on the team level. So were there some triggering events or experiences or working with organizations that, you know, made you or inspired you to focus more on teams? Yeah, there were. Um, so, so one of the things that happened is after I um, published Disrupt Yourself, I had um, a lot of people come to me and say, okay, I get it. Like I, I want to disrupt myself, but number one, I'm not going to let people inside my company read this because then they're going to leave. <laughs> and then also <laughs> I would have people say, I don't want to leave my company. Like I like where I am. So how do I apply these ideas inside of my organization? How do I create an ecosystem where um, personal disruption is possible? And so that was the genesis of this, of this pain point that I needed to solve for. Um, the, the, this whole realization though, that, um, that this could lead to building a great team was almost a consequence. It's not where I started, it's where I ended up. And so I had this idea of, okay, so how do I create an ecosystem where people can disrupt? And then, um, because I want to respond to the individual, because the fundamental unit of disruption is the individual. Um, but then that led me to this place of, okay, if I want an organization that is innovative, and if I want an organization that can manage through change, then I have to optimize where my people are on the learning curve. And, and then I came up with this wonderful discovery or aha that if you will have 70% of your people in the sweet spot of their learning and 15% who are just starting on their learning and 15% who are have mastered what they've learned at any given time on a team, then you'll have a team that can really innovate. And if your team can innovate, then your, your company or your organization can lower its we're about to be disrupted score. That's great. And so as you mentioned already, and the book starts with uh, one of my favorite models, the S-curve, which I learned from you in our previous podcasts and, and also the book. And, and this is a model that I tell everybody about because a lot of people have never heard of this. And second, they don't know where they're on it because I think once you understand where you are on your current S-curve, it really clarifies a lot for you. You know, maybe some of the the stress or anxiety you're experiencing or some of the difficulties in, in breaking through or maybe some of the inertia and, and some of the, you know, when the passion is gone a little bit, that is explained as well. And so you took this S-curve model. It's, it's like a spine going through this book on teams. Um, can you tell us a little bit why you felt that this S-curve was so important for people to understand? Yeah. So the, the reason it's important to understand is that when we, we recognize that, well, let me back up. So what I would say is that, um, while we were investing in disruption, we were applying the S curve. So this was popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962, and it would, he would use it to help you figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. Um, and so if you picture this S, it's kind of a, it looks a lot like a wave at the low end of the S, you know, that when you introduce a new product, the growth is going to be really slow. 
But then once you reach that knee of the curve um, or a tipping point, which is typically 10 to 15% penetration of any given market, you move on to the steeper part of the curve or that back of the S curve where there's a lot of hyper growth. Everything's happening really, really fast in a short period of time. And then as you reach saturation of a market, 90%, your growth tapers off. So the big aha that I had was that this isn't just about products. It also could help us understand people, how we learn, that every single one of us is a learning machine, that when we start something new, we're at the bottom of the S, we don't know how to do it. Then after we put in effort, we move into the steep part of the S, that sleek back where we know enough, but not too much. So we're figuring things out. And then as you put in more and more effort, you get to the top of the S where you're now a master, but because everything is easy, you get bored. And so what do you have to do? You have to jump to the bottom of a new learning curve. You need to learn and leap and repeat. And I felt like this was important because once you understand this, you understand your biology, you understand that we are wired to learn and to leap and repeat, then it explains so much in terms of our own career trajectories, as well as how we need to manage the people who are working for us. Exactly. And and so following the, the first book, I guess many people made the association that um, if I wanted to really step on a new curve and, and challenge myself and, and, and go even higher, then I need to either change jobs or change roles within the organization or become an entrepreneur. And what you have conceptualized in this book is that um, organizations can give a lot of, uh, somehow loosen up the constraints of this scientific management, this one size fits all, and accompany people, as you said, who are on different stages on their S-curve and leverage it really to their benefit, which is quite counterintuitive in a way as well within an organizational context. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it, uh, a person at the low end of their learning um, is in a very, needs a very different management style um, than a person who's at the high end of their learning. They're very, very different. And so um, and, and they've got to manage their own learning, but um, because the power is always asymmetrical within an organization, um, you you've got a responsibility to help lead them up the curve. And that doesn't necessarily mean to know how to teach them how to do everything, but to certainly project manage their learning, if you will. And what is the the business case for us within an organization? So, how do you convince um, CEOs or top managers to to adopt a new mindset, really, to to become more sensitive to this and, and a company really through the whole employee cycle from recruitment to development um, and take this into consideration, allow people to be on the different stages. What's the business case? What what can companies gain from this? Yeah, so, um, so a couple of thoughts. We, we know that there's... Um, data that says that if your um, people are engaged, then your operating margins are higher, your ROI is higher. So we know that 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 drives that. We also know that if people are learning, they're engaged. And so I would actually also flip it and say, okay, well, if you know that you need your people to be engaged, then what do you do about that? And so 
I think the starting place for you to is say, all right, well, I've got a person on my team. They're very, very much a high performer. I like them right where they are. I don't want them to do anything different, right? Because that's where this really becomes problematic is you've got this star performer and you want to be a talent hoarder, like you want to keep them. So then you say to yourself, okay, I could keep them here, but what's going to happen if they stay here? They're probably going to leave because they're not having, they're not enjoying their work anymore. Or if they do stay, then they're going to stop um, performing well because they're bored and people who are bored don't actually innovate. And so if they stay, then they're, they're less innovative. If they're, if your people stay and they're less innovative, then you're going to start getting beaten by faster adapting competitors. So, so you, you know, that engagement, um, letting people learn drives engagement. And if you drive engagement, you know, that there are studies that show that highly engaged employees drive the bottom line. And then if you look at it from a more qualitative standpoint, the neuroscience is telling you if your people are bored, they're not going to innovate. And if your people aren't innovate, then you get less left dust left in the dust. And so that's, those are some of, um, how I would make the case internally. And, and also I think what's, in addition to to all of that, it 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 also forces organizations to become more trusting and more, you know, less based on fear, most more based on trust because you you allow people to come forth a little bit more in their own learning journeys and their own careers. Right, absolutely. And Agnes, I think you point out something really really important because sometimes people will say, well you know, Whitney, can you have my boss read this book? And I'm like, well, yeah, I can. But really, this starts with you. And and what I would say is if you are having trouble letting people on your team jump to new learning curves, then that requires your own personal work. Because sometimes when we don't want people to jump, it's because we're worried that if we lose our high performers, then our team is going to underperform. And they might in the short term. But it's also not understanding that if you can... Um, allow high performers to continue to be high performers, either by doing something new on your team or going somewhere else, then you start to become a talent magnet and you start to attract the best talent because people know that if they're working for you, they're going to get a lot more opportunities. And so, um, and I think a great example of this is WD-40. You know, this is a company, it's not Google, it's not Facebook. They make a can of oil that prevents um, you know, rusting and, and and squeaking. And yet their engagement scores are 90% plus versus an average of 30% in the United States and 15% globally. So you ask yourself like, well, what's the secret? Oh, and by the way, their market cap over the last two decades has gone from a $250 million to eight, two, sorry, $250 million to $2 billion. So that's an eight times eightfold increase, which is well above the S&P 500. And the secret then we all know, and this is what we saw from our research is that they allow their people to learn to leap and repeat. And so that I say, going back to your actually early question, that's the business case. That's the business case is when you're willing to let your people learn, then, then you create a tremendous amount of value. Absolutely. And, and you start off actually your book with a very personal testimony, your 2004 experience when you yourself wanted to, um, you know, take the next step and move into management roles and and your then chief or top executive then confronted you with we like you right where you are <laughs> and right. and that yes and and actually I just wanted because when I was reading that it made me think of another podcast conversation actually I had 
with the Finnish Chamber of Commerce. And they made a very interesting study. They looked at uh, where is the glass ceiling in Finnish companies for women. And one of their findings was from interviews is that a lot of the times women were actively discouraged by their boss to seek new challenges or new opportunities because they were, you know, affirmed to say, well, you're doing such a fantastic job in this role. We really appreciate you. So do you think that this is also something to do with how women versus how men manage their careers of, of women perhaps being more or less likely to take risks and, and go for the next steps? Yeah, I think there are, I think there are a lot of nuances um, there that are particular to to uh, females versus males. Um, there's a wonderful book out now called How Women Rise by Sally Helgeson and, and Marshall Goldsmith that really addresses this, that in fact, it's interesting because he had written a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and he had written it and um, you know, things like, uh, you, you can't take too much credit men. Like you've got to stop, you know, being such a braggadocio. And so what happened is he then had this conversation with Sally Helgeson, who had written a book called the female advantage, like 30 years ago. And she said, you know, I don't really think that that's the problem with women. Like women aren't having a, pro women aren't talking about themselves too much. They're not talking about themselves enough. And so absolutely there are some uh, nuances that are relevant to, um, to women in particular. Um, and there's a sense of what happens. I think part of the reason of we like you right where they are is because women do tend to be more relational, um, and feel, um, you know, feminine within the context of a relationship. If someone says, we like you here, you're valuable here. We need you here. There's a sense of, I'm going to let people down if I try to do something else. Like it's, it's, I'm going to let people down and perhaps it's not my right to go after something else. So there's certainly a, a subtext here that is worth thinking about, but I would definitely recommend for people who are trying to think through this, whether you're women or men, I would, I would encourage the book, how women rise. Mm, absolutely. And now, I wanted to also ask you about another um, issue that, you know, we're confronted with lots of different aspects from organizational development. And, and that's this issue of line managers or team leaders, because I would imagine that, that you know, CEOs or, or senior or C-suite executives would would, you know, devour your book and say, yes, absolutely, we need to become such a learning organization, such an organization that allows people to, to grow and, and continually learn. And, and that's how we will innovate. But a lot of the times there comes then a kind of a repercussion on the on the line manager who is then not at all equipped or not trained or not used to um, this kind of new management approach. Some people refer to this line manager level as the permafrost in organizations. So how do you um, advise companies or what is your advice? How do you approach this, this middle management level in, for them to transform and, and, and enable their employees to come forth and, and then also to, to do this kind of new way of working in a sense? Yeah. So it's a great question, Agnes. So yeah, absolutely. When you, you definitely, when you're in the middle of an organization, you do have less latitude. There's downside and sometimes not a lot of upside. What I would say though, is there are still places that you can start. Um, you, number one, 
I think being aware of this learning curve um, allows you to start to think about your team, right? You do have control over your team and how you manage your team. And so if you can start thinking about how do I optimize my team and how do I, you know, for the people who are at the low end of the learning curve on my team, what am I doing? Am I making sure they're getting the training that they need? Not necessarily from me, but just the training that they need. Am I being patient, understanding that they're going to be slow initially? And as they have suggestions for how we can improve things because they're brand new, am I listening to them or am I just rejecting them because they're wasting my time? Those are such great um, potential insights that can lead to innovation. So that would be the first thing. And I I would say whether you're a CEO or a line manager, um, there's always things that you can do to improve. The same thing when you've got your people in the sweet spot, you know, there are some people on your team that are really doing a good job. Are you stretching them? And within your domain, there are opportunities to stretch those people. It doesn't necessarily mean just give them more, but it does mean give them stretch assignments and then what's easy for them can be a stretch assignment for someone else and also remember to appreciate the people in their sweet spot everything's working don't make them a problem child because you're ignoring them and then for your people at the top end the way you can manage those people is say okay I understand that you're at the top of the curve. At least this is what the neuroscientist is telling us. What do you want to do? Do you want to stay here? Do you want to do something new? Um, how can I help you? Um, and But if I am going to help you, I need you to finish strong. I need you to help us get a successor in place because when you jump, it's like a library burning and we've got to figure out how to do that. Now, for that line manager, here's a conversation that's important that they have. They need to be able to go to their boss Remember, they've got to say to their boss, here's what I'm going to be doing. This makes sense for the organization. So they've got to get buy-in from their boss. It makes sense from the organization to manage our team this way because what it means is that they will all be engaged. And if they're engaged, then they're going to do better work. I'm going to do this. It's going to help developmentally. Um, But I need to know that you'll have my back because it means that there will be some movement in the interim that might not seem like we're optimizing, but we are optimizing for the future. It's just not for the present. We're sub-optimizing the present to optimize for the future. And so as a line manager, there's lots of things you can do with your team, but one critical skill is to understand how to manage up and talk about what you're doing and not as a binary, we're going to do this or we're going to do that, but we're going to try some things. It makes sense to do in the near term. These are some risks, but for the company in the long term and for our team development in the near term, this is the right decision to make. And so you're helping to manage the risk by having that conversation, um, and with your, with the people who are, um, you know, you, the, the people that you report to. Absolutely. Well, this is great. This is really, really useful. I'm sure listeners are taking notes and, and preparing these kind of conversations. Um, before we go to the last question, um, I, I really liked that you have included hiring and onboarding in the book because, you know, if there's a wrong fit from the start and, and somebody's in the wrong job, uh, there's really no amount of coaching or engagement effort or motivation that, that will work. So um, can you tell us a little bit about from from a team or organizational perspective, what are the critical aspects of, of this learning curve? I would imagine people would think, you know, we just hire somebody who's just going to jump on the, um, you know, at the bottom of the S curve. But there have been 
I really enjoyed reading. There have been quite a new, few new articles out there about hiring more experienced women or more experienced men or, or perhaps um, more senior people. Um, because that's going to add to the mix, right? If you're a young startup, for example, that I've worked with recently, it's just all millennials. And, and adding some people who are higher up on their S-curve can really leverage and, and motivate and boost the whole team performance. So how do you see this from, from this hiring and onboarding perspective? That's a really great point, Agnes. So I think um, to your point, um, sometimes we think with a team, when you're thinking about domain expertise, you're like, I want, you know, top of the curve expertise. I want the gold standard. I don't want anybody who's at the low end of the learning curve. Um, um, you've pointed out this idea that, you know, there's the the arc of your career is one big learning curve and then it's like a fractal. There's lots of smaller learning curves along the way. In a startup, as you mentioned, if you've got uh, millennials who haven't ever managed someone, you can synthetically create. So you've got a lot of low enders. You've got potentially some people in the sweet spot and no one at the high end. And you're like, I do need one or two people at the high end who knows who know what they're doing. That's where you synthetically create it. You can either hire someone or you can bring in some people who are consultants and sometimes advisory boards play that role, but say to them, here's what I need you to do. I need you to help project manage the learning of the people who are coming up the curve. And so that, that would be my advice there. Um, you flagged that and I think it's, it's really important and, and can be beneficial. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily hire them, but you do need that kind of expertise because those are people who can help, help more you and keep you, um, tethered to reality as you're trying to figure tethered to reality in a good way not necessarily a bad way not the status quo but to reality absolutely um now before we go to the last question may i ask you whitney if you would like to share with um, listeners where they can find you where they can read about your book where they can read about your your um, your other work your where they can find your podcasts yeah so the best place is to go to my website whitneydonson.com and for those people who are interested in figuring out where they are in the learning curve, um, you can download the diagnostic and see where you are in the learning curve and also potentially have your team take it and see where they are on the learning curve. And um, and that also at my website will help you figure out uh, where my podcast is, uh, where you can buy the books, et cetera. So just WhitneyJohnson.com. Now, coming to the last question, which is always the same here on the Work Life Podcast, if I could ask you what would be your main advice or your your one key advice to a CEO to to take their teams more into becoming these A teams, you know, how they can start adopting these this mindset and, and these these techniques and these tools. What would be your kind of one key advice to a CEO? Well, the my first, I'll, I'll give two pieces of advice, three pieces of advice, actually. So first is to be willing to disrupt yourself because it starts at the top. And the more you're willing to try new things and to continually iterate um, on the version of you, um, there's a contagion effect. And then people will have both the confidence and the willingness to disrupt how they're, um, how they're being in, inside the workplace. So that would be number one. Number two, um, I would say... 
one of the ways that you can disrupt yourself is to be willing every day to, um, cause you don't necessarily, you're not going to leave being CEO. Um, but you can find ways to be learning and that can be spending 15 minutes a day, just studying your craft. Um, whether it's how to be a better CEO, whether it's, um, learning more about your industry, whether it's learning about industries that seem like they have nothing to do with your industry, but, but pushing yourself to, um, to continually learn. Um, and then the third, uh, suggestion I would make is just remember that when you feel scared and when you feel lonely, you're usually on the right path to disruption. So, um, so just remember that. So as you're trying to figure all of this out, you're probably going to be a little bit scared. You're probably going to be a little bit lonely. Again, you're at the loan of the learning curve, figuring that out. Just remember that that's exactly how you're supposed to feel when you're first starting out and trying to be uh, disruptive, whether you're disrupting yourself or whether you're disrupting your industry. And to keep going, right? Because that's when you get the knee-jerk reaction. Oh my God, something's going horribly wrong. I better go back to how it was before. That's right. That's right. That's where you need to keep going, especially if it's, um, especially if you're taking on, you know, playing where no one else is playing, you're playing to your strengths. It's hard but not debilitating, like it's hard, but you're enjoying yourself and you're gaining some type of momentum. If those four things are in place, absolutely, you just need to continue to persist. If they're not, it might not be the right curve and that's okay because no S curve is ever wasted. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Whitney, really for taking time out of your really busy schedule and, and really coming on this podcast and sharing all your insight with the listeners. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm so sure that, that all of the listeners have taken away a lot of insight and knowledge from you. Well, thank you for having me, Agnes. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope you really got a lot out of it. And if you're interested to um, more episodes of the podcast, go to www.worklifehub.com forward slash podcast where you see over 100 episodes of great conversations with very inspiring guests about the new world of work and work-life balance, work-life integration, leadership, all manners of subjects. And if you have a suggestion for a speaker or a guest we could invite on this podcast, then please don't hesitate to let us know at info at worklifehub.com. We're really looking forward to hearing from you and to hearing your feedback. Thank you.